Hi, how are you doing? I'm crouching inside a very dense hedge. The sun has gone down and it's rapidly getting dark. And that sound you can hear is the unmistakable song of a male nightingale. My name's Melissa Harrison, and I'm a novelist and nature writer. I'm lucky enough to live in rural Suffolk, and I can walk out of my cottage into woods and fields without passing another human being. So from now, through spring and summer, and into autumn, I'm going to help you keep in touch with the natural world and the changing seasons. This is episode four of a weekly podcast. The Stubborn Light of Things. One's going kiwik and the other goes woo. Just seen a hare on the walk here. I saw another four innumerable rabbits. I was barked at by a muntjac, shouted at by someone's peacock. I've realised that for some reason it's almost impossible talk at normal volume in the dark. Not sure why. Anyway, I grew up in Surrey and 45 years ago there will have been decent numbers of nightingales. The numbers have fallen by 93% in that time. I don't remember ever hearing one as a child. So a few years ago, I set off on a series of pilgrimages to try and hear one at Great Bookham, which is where I went to school. I was living in London at the time and I'd get the seven o'clock out of Waterloo with all the commuters. I'd get out at Great Bookham, which is a tiny rural station, and walk straight off the platform onto the common, which is a mixture of grassland and scrub, uh, some wood and some coppice, and it's grazed some of the time by cattle and after on visit after visit 
I would walk around, listening to the evening chorus, and occasionally seeing other bird watchers. We'd just look at each other and shake our heads. There were no nightingales there. I did hear one at another Surrey site called Capel, which is a privately owned nature reserve, but there were none at Bookham. And then I was invited by the Wildlife Trust to write about nightingales. And along with Peter Rogers, who produces this podcast, got the train to a site called Fingering Ho Wick in Essex, where they had about 30 singing males. And it was absolutely astonishing. And if you want to see the face of a man from Luton hearing his first ever nightingale, do go to the podcast website, which is melissaharrison.co.uk forward slash podcast and click into the episode. And then the most wonderful thing happened. I moved to Suffolk and the first village I moved to, not far from where I live now, had two that first spring and one I could hear from my doorstep. Of the two, one paired and one didn't. And the one that didn't was singing right beside the A12 night after night. And it could be that the sound of the traffic drowned him out. Just one of the ways in which anthropogenic noise, noise created by humans, can have a negative impact on wildlife. But that year I discovered the site where I am now, which last year had five singing males. I've counted three so far this year. I would have liked one in my own village, but this is only two to three kilometres away. It's an easy walk, although I came here when it was light and it's now getting dark. So the walk home is going to be a little bit more of a challenge. one of last week's set of diary entries from Gilbert White. He noted the arrival of nightingales and he was making the connection between the places where they set up a territory and how that piece of land had been managed. He was thinking about when a particular wood had last been coppiced. This week he's back thinking about um, one of his favourite subjects. Um, swifts and house martins and whether they migrate in winter or perhaps hibernate in someone's roof. Here's Gilbert White's diary entries for today, April the 27th. April 27th, 1772. Ground dries and binds up very hard. April 27th, 1774. Oaks are felled. The bark runs freely. Many swallows. Two swifts round the church. April 27th, 1778. A day or two before any house martins had been observed, Thomas Hoare distinctly heard pretty late one evening twittering notes of those birds from under the eaves of my brew house, between the ceiling and the thatch. Now the query is whether those birds had harboured there the winter through and were just awakening from their slumbers, 
or whether they had only just taken possession of that place unnoticed and were lately arrived from some distant district. If the former was the case, they went not far to seek for a hibernaculum, since they nestle every year along the eaves of that building. Mr. Durham wrote to the Royal Society that some time before any swifts had been seen, I think before the month of March was out, he heard them squeaking behind the weather tiles on the front of his parsonage house. It is a pity that so curious a naturalist did not proceed to the taking down some of the tiles that he might have satisfied his eyes as well as his hearing. April 27, 1783. Many swallows. Strong aurora. April 27, 1792. The middle bantam hen sits in the barn planted four rows of potatoes in the home garden. Nightingale's song is incredibly complex. And a, a male can have up to about 250 different phrases which he can combine in innumerable ways. And there's a really pleasing correlation between complexity of a nightingale's song and his fitness as a mate there's no false advertising at all the more complex the song it's been shown the more food he brings back to his partner when she's sitting on eggs and to feed the chicks so it really is a case of what you hear is what you get Thomas said of the Song of the Nightingale, Beautiful as the notes are for their quality and order, it is their inhumanity that gives them their utmost fascination, the mysterious sense which they bear to us that earth is something more than a human estate, that there are things not human yet of great honour and power in the world. When I was in my 20s, I would have completely poo-pooed that. I thought it was very clever to be cynical. I took refuge in it. It made me feel safe and right and rational. I look back now and I can see it for the defence that it was. What I wanted more than anything was to be a writer. And you can't be creative in any sphere without being open to your subconscious and the unknown and uncertainty and doubt but I was too afraid to try in case I failed so I shut myself off from anything that might lead me to take a risk and now of course I understand the least interesting thing you can ask about someone else's beliefs is, are they true? The interesting question is, what do they mean? And are they useful to you?
been writing a monthly nature notebook column in the Times since 2014. And in November, Faber are collecting up all my columns and publishing them as the stubborn light of things. Here's an extract from a column I wrote in April 2015, when, as you'll hear, the world was a completely different place. The Times Nature Notebook, April 2015. At last, some proper spring sunshine. It only takes a day or two of warm weather before London's parks and gardens fill up with picnickers, tourists, frisbee throwers and office workers on their lunch breaks. And after what's felt like a long winter, the sense of optimism and release has been palpable. How lucky we are in the capital to have so much green space to spill out into. Smack bang in the heart of the city, Hyde Park was packed to the gills with people when I visited with David Darrell Lambert on a sunny weekday afternoon. An expert birder and chair of the ornithological section of the London Natural History Society, David can pick out the note of a distant tree creeper over traffic, tourists and great tits in full song and spot the tiny speck of a sparrowhawk in what looks to most of us like an empty sky. Soon it was clear that the park was just as busy with birds as it was with people, though had I been alone I would only have picked out half the species we logged. Most exciting to me was the little owl who glared briefly out at us from a crevice in a veteran oak, and the Chetty's warbler belting out a sudden song from a deep thicket in hopes of a mate. Like the parakeets that occasionally swung past us like Viridian trapeze artists, both birds are immigrants to this country. Though unlike the noisy and enterprising parakeets, neither is currently getting anyone's backs up. The little owl, however, did undergo a period of being unfairly maligned when they first began to breed in Britain. Victorian gamekeepers, convinced quite wrongly that these foreign birds were damaging their livelihood by feasting on partridge and pheasant chicks, themselves, of course, non-natives introduced to Britain for sport, were vocal in calling for little owls to be exterminated in case they spread uncontrollably across the country. It is to the great credit of the British Trust for Ornithology that this powerful lobby was resisted. Sadly, the UK's population of this charismatic little raptor is nevertheless in decline. It's really quite dark now. And I think I'm going to set out, head for home. My guest this week is the journalist and travel writer Ginny Reddy. And her new book is called Wonderland, spelled with an A, a search for magic in the landscape. And in it, she travels across Britain, seeking out encounters with the spiritual, the mystical and the numinous. Ginny embodies two of the traits I rate most highly in human beings, curiosity and open-mindedness. Here she tells us about the encounter that provided the seed for the book. A few years ago, I found myself high atop a sacred peak in the French Pyrenees. It was called Hartsamendi, or Bear Mountain. I was surrounded by waist-high ferns. Beyond them lay dense forest and a setting sun. 
intense ribbons of orange cloaking more sacred peaks with interesting names. I shivered in anticipation of the long night ahead. I was on a solo nature quest, a version of a vision quest, a traditional rite of passage ceremony practiced by many indigenous cultures across the world, including the Lakota and Ojibwe. The person on the quest goes into nature for several days to communicate with a sacred, sentient earth in search of answers to a big life question or to mark a transition. You sit within a circle of a few feet and don't move about much. The journey is an inner one. You immerse yourself in nature in return filled with insight. I had a compulsion to hear nature's voice, to connect with a living but non-human otherness, and to still an intangible but deep-rooted need for belonging that, no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't answer amidst the distractions of modern life. That was what had led me here. My shelter was a small tent. I had nine bottles of water and, as this was a fast, two apples and some nuts to keep hunger at bay. I had relinquished my phone and watch to the guide, a shaman, who'd led me up here. All I had was my camera. Radical trust was a phrase that kept playing on my mind. Could I rest in the unknown, be still, and have faith that I would be safe? When the sun set, I crawled into my tent, fearful of the dark. And then the unimaginable happened. A silence descended so deep you could cut it with a knife. The hair stood up on the back of my neck. It was as if the mountain, the forest, and all of its creatures were holding their breath. And then I heard it close to my ear, just beyond the canvas. It was an unearthly, disembodied whisper filled with conscious intent, and yet there had been no footsteps, no crackling of branches. The otherness I'd eagerly sought had come to visit, and I was terrified. On and on it went, and then, as suddenly as it began, the whispering stopped and the forest exhaled. Was it the lord of the forest that my shaman friend had spoken of? A nature spirit? It was a mystery, one I will puzzle over for the rest of my life. But the experience made me aware that I'm not alone, that my allies in nature see me just as I see them, that in stillness both the sacred and the mysterious are able to be present in my life. incredible smell <laughs> someone's been muck spreading on the fields one of the farmers has been out and it absolutely reeks oh my god oh man alive that's that's ripe coming down the lane into my own village now. Kelp 
parsley's coming out in the hedges. It's just glimmering in the dark. There's big florets of Alexander's as well. It's quite a big, ugly plant, apparently introduced by the Romans. And I can smell lilac. Yes, hear the lilacs out in the centre of the village. Oh, that's lovely. I'm walking underneath it. Oh, that's really nice. Past the village sign and the notice board. And everyone tucked up, watching telly or going to bed. Got the curtains closed. I'm very glad to be back. That was a mission. Everything's warm and safe. Everything's known and familiar. But as comforting as that is, it's still really important to me now to have some kind of contact with the dark and with mystery and the unknown. I may not think of myself as spiritual, but I believe that even the most rational of us need moments of imminence, of meaning. And I think these moments can come out of the most everyday things. That's why Caroline Duffy's poem, Prayer, resonates with so many people. Mystery and grace can permeate the known as well as the unknown, if we're open to it. Prayer. Some days, although we cannot pray, a prayer utters itself. So a woman will lift her head from the sieve of her hands and stare at the minims sung by a tree, a sudden gift. Some nights, although we are faithless, the truth enters our hearts, that small, familiar pain. Then a man will stand stock still, hearing his youth in the distant Latin chanting of a train. Pray for us now. Grade one piano scales console the lodger looking out across a Midlands town. Then dusk, and someone calls a child's name as though they named their loss. Darkness outside. Inside, the radio's prayer. Rockall, Malin, Dogger, Finisterre. 